Welcome to the Renew the Arts podcast, where we discuss the role of art and creativity in the church and in the world. We're your hosts, Justice Stout and Michael Minkoff. Our mission at Renew the Arts is to liberate Christian creativity. At renewtheArts.org, you can see how you can get involved in the creative revival that is currently happening in the church. In the last four years, we've given away more than $200,000 in sponsorship value for projects by Christians who are dedicated to their craft and to their faith. If you like what we're doing, please support our efforts by joining our patron community and perhaps sponsoring a podcast episode. For more details, visit our website or reach out via email. Well, you wrote us with your questions. And we heard you. And now, we're going to get it. Oh. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to get it. That'll do. For this episode, we want to thank Joe Futral. Um, Since this is the mailbag episode, we thought it would be appropriate. But uh, he has been commenting and engaging so consistently with the podcast and our blog and we just really appreciate it. We so, appreciate it a lot. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. All right, so let's just get into it. Just open the digital mailbox. Yep, we've Morning. got <laughs> we've got a number. I think we should start with the most important one first. Yeah, let's start. Yeah. This is uh, from Josh Jackson, Who's and a, it concerns milk. Yeah, he's a sponsored artist, so he's stayed here at the compound a couple times, and. Uh, he had an issue while he was here with our milk. Mm-hmm. So he asks us, what makes raw whole milk better than regular store-bought milk? And we need to say this for the record and for any uh, legal people who might be listening. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> we do not drink raw milk in Georgia because it's illegal. Oh. So that's it. Okay. But if you were to drink raw milk... While we were at your house? While you were at my house you would realize that it is the most delicious milk that there has ever been, and it's drinking milk the way God intended. So, Mm. yeah. From the cow. Straight from the cow. Is that the way God intended? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, but speaking of... This is raising uh, more questions than answers. The way God intended, uh, (laughs) we're going to go straight to our most controversial episode. Uh, which was not the episode I expected it to be. It was a surprising one. It was very surprising. Season two, episode six. Church uh, architecture. On church architecture ended up being the episode that elicited the greatest number of uh, confused or just people apparently had a lot to say about this one. Um, I think that that's probably because it's one of the most um, consistent church outputs as far as creativity right. because and really just out of necessity you have to have a church building mm-hmm. and so no matter what church you are maybe you don't have t- paintings maybe you don't even sing music mm-hmm. but you're going to have a church building basically right and so yeah maybe everybody's invested in it somewhat to a greater degree just wait till we do our uh, worship music episode that'll that'll be that'll, that'll be lots of fun that'll probably bring in some comments. but uh we actually got some really great comments on this one uh the first comments I'd like to read, I'm not going to read all of her comments. She gave an extraordinary and very detailed write-up on the episode. It was very helpful. Uh, this is from Lindsay Sutton, and she wrote, You said, number one, that God listed out what God finds beautiful, and number two, we should obviously orient ourselves around his tastes. And she gave us a time code. It's 14 minutes in. 
This is, she says, number one, an unfounded assumption about God and God's preferences, and therefore, number two, an unfair expectation to place on God's people. Even if we did know God's reasons for listing out all the X's and all the Y's, assuming that the same requirements should be followed by all Christians for all time ties Christians to legalism and fundamentalism. And uh, she also, she has some other comments that we'll get to in a second, but I wanted to address those uh, first. Mm-hmm. Um, because really, what's interesting is we got a comment, and I guess I could bring these comments in right now, uh, from Tom Chapman on the same episode, and he writes, is the notion of how long it takes to build a church an objective biblical standard or a personal preference? If I think a church like Church of the Apostles is pretty, but someone doesn't, someone else doesn't because of some personal preference, how do we decide if it really is pretty? How long should it take for a church to be built before it meets your criteria? So it's like almost on the opposite sides of the spectrum. As far as one person thinks you're demanding too many specifics and the other person doesn't think... You have specifics enough. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's really what you're dealing with when it comes to the arts. Uh, And we wrote an article about this sort of addressing this very issue that in the podcast, we're trying to use examples and specifics as a way of illustrating uh, an Mm. approach to the conversation. Yeah, yeah. we're not, uh, I don't think at any point we actually encourage the rebuilding of the tabernacle or temple as far as aesthetically. Um, I don't think that, uh, I don't think going back to old architectures, uh, that might be actually putting um, intentions to God where they could probably be easily seen as misplaced because it was a different time. Um, and obviously the temple has been done away with. However, there are certainly um, there are glimpses into God's character in the way that He commissions these buildings, and in the way that He does a lot of things um, that make me think that He loves beauty. The way that He has created the earth makes me think that He loves beauty. Mm-hmm. The way that He commissioned the temple, well, the tabernacle, and then the temple. Uh, as his dwelling place makes me think that he appreciates craftsmanship and um, and a high level of expertise. So we're really not trying to bring architecture back to a old Israel type aesthetic at all. And or I don't think we ever said that. Or a cathedral aesthetic either. Or a cathedral aesthetic. These it's, are examples of people though who have actually, I think, done a good job in their time. according to their time. Yeah. They use the, the resources of their time, and it's interesting that God commissioned according to the resources of their time, like mm-hmm. cedars of Lebanon, mm-hmm. and right. you know, it's like cedars of Lebanon, what does that mean? Well, that was one of the materials that, that meant was... something and was available to the people. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm not saying that all churches need to be made out of cedars of Lebanon. I'm saying that all churches should be... Um, brought to probably a higher standard than currently held of um, beauty, craftsmanship, and expertise, and um, uh, loveliness. Agreed. And hospitality, which is actually another point that Lindsay made that I thought was a really good point. Do mm-hmm. we have it here? Probably. Uh, she says, we should not be thinking how the, how will this building serve us, but how will this building serve God? She's quoting us. Right. And she says, this reminds me of when Jesus said that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was designed to serve man. Man is not to serve the Sabbath. I believe the same goes for church buildings. The purpose of a church building is to impact and inspire the congregants. It is for the people, not for God. 
One can make the building beautiful and attempt to glorify God with it, but if the sole purpose, even the main purpose, is to serve God and not the people gathering there, the church building has missed the point. And surely serving God's people, tending to the sheep, is what Jesus calls us toward anyway. That is how we serve God, by serving his people. And honestly, I don't disagree with her on that. For the that. most part, yeah. I, I think I completely agree. I don't uh, think even, it's necessarily... Especially if you take into consideration our episode on art and hospitality. Right. Um, which we referred to. Um, I guess whenever we mentioned building the church, designing a church specifically with God in mind, um, there's no way of separating that from building with God's people in mind. And I guess the idea is that it's not for self-gratification or grandeur. And in the terms of the congregation, it's not It's not only for the, uh, let's say, the comfort or coddling of a specific people or con- congregation, because architecture, just like any other form of art, has the ability of being hospitable, but also has the ability to challenge, mm-hmm. and those aren't at odds with one another. Especially not within the church. Right. And I, I think, really, that's where I'm coming from, is I don't, I, there's not a checklist and I think you should avoid trying to uh, put words in God's mouth. Mm-hmm. And I and I I'm I'm receiving Lindsay's comments in those terms. Like I, I agree. Like I don't. Yeah. We're not trying to say one cultural expression of a of of a submissive attitude toward God within the arts is going to suffice for all time. Right. Um, because there are different cultures. There are different times. There are different needs. What's interesting is she actually went on to discuss that the New Testament has no emphasis on buildings or structures at all, and that perhaps God is no longer concerned about these things. But I feel like she's not even, uh, at that point, putting into practice the very criticisms she is leveling at us, which is, you know, there were probably New Testament era, first century reasons why the church building was not really focused well, on. Well, in a lot of places, it was an underground movement, exactly. so you couldn't have a public place of worship. Right. So, to say that we're bound by the same strictures or cultural expressions of the first century church is, I think, as equally erroneous as saying we're bound to the cultural expression of the temple or the tabernacle. Which is why we said, firstly, it's for the glory of God. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, that includes his bride. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going to honor Michael by dismissing his bride. Right. And so, we're not going to glorify God by being inhospitable or uncaring for his people. Mm-hmm. So, um, but at the same time, there's an, a difficulty there because the church tends toward apathy. That's right. So, how do you make art and design your buildings that draw your attention toward the truth and toward God and encourage your congregation in comfort where appropriate, but in challenging where it's appropriate, and in, you know, revelation and, you know, in, in things that, that they wouldn't necessarily choose themselves. But it is a free, I think, process and a local process. It should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, we probably didn't communicate clearly enough in that episode. Uh, very likely. I would say probable. 100%. Uh, there seems to be a fairly fundamental misunderstanding uh, about about these things, I think, uh, on both sides, mm-hmm. where it's like to say that it's culturally expressed means there are no principles at all. I don't think that's true. Right. To say that uh, that in order for there to be principles, there has to be a checklist, you know, an mm-hmm. objective and external checklist. I don't think that's true either. Mm-hmm. There's actually a middle way uh, between that. And um, we're not about setting up rules or checklists or guidelines for the external qualities of a church or art in general, yeah. because these will differ from case to case. That doesn't mean there aren't principles, however, and certain foundational principles should be pursued. 
Anyway, so I actually wrote a little sentence. Uh, it's not a little sentence. It's actually extremely long. Sorry. Um, but it is sort of, we talked about the cathedral spirit. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to give some better explanations of what I think the cathedral spirit might look like. All right. Let it um, run. All right. So a church building project exhibiting the cathedral spirit, one, incorporates the best available techniques, craft, and materials. Two, under the primary leadership of a God-gifted and church-confirmed artistic visionary, fully committed to honoring God and serving the church, in order to, three, produce a visible witness, both of the church's humble self-sacrifice to God for his long-term glory and of God's majesty and beauty to a watching and perhaps incredulous world. So, that's what I think sort of like encapsulates the the cathedral spirit. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, yeah. Sounds good. Moving on. Yeah, I'm sure that's not exactly clear. I'm gonna write. I'm gonna write an article unpacking. A Can lot there of be that mailbag stuff. for mailbags? Yeah, we're gonna. I know, right? Send them in. Send them in. <laughs> Mailbox is open. Okay, and then we had. Um, so that was on, and also Joe Frutral, uh wrote a really long and extremely helpful um, comment on the church architecture episode that I recommend you read. I'm not gonna read it. Uh, here. It is long, but it's really good. And basically, he talks about how he went and saw some of these cathedrals and was overwhelmed by the sense of majesty. But then when he started looking into the, and Lindsay mentions this too, the politics, the posturing, and the other things that went into actually getting these cathedrals built. And the way that they finance them. And the way that they finance them. Mm-hmm. It actually puts a sour, it, it really does make the situation a lot more sour. And so, those kinds That's of, completely understandable. Yeah. It, That's not is. the situation today, though, either. No. Um, we are in an incredibly, we live in an incredibly rich time. Mm-hmm. Um, people are more wealthy than they have ever been and in a more free way for the most part. And so it's a matter of priority of resources. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't think that the church architecture should actually, like by no means are we saying it should be the number one priority mm-hmm. of the church is like, Build a fancy building. Yeah. Um, at the same time, I think the status quo for the most part is build a cheap building right now. Build a metal building. Build something with low utility. upfront cost and low maintenance cost, utility, you know, no windows and something that... So, I think that somewhere in the middle, and again, we're not trying to set a very specific line, but saying that um, architecture matters, it says something about your your faith. It says something about your congregation. It says something about that, your God. And it does, yeah. It's a witness. And so take that into consideration whenever you're looking at your budget and you're looking at your resources. Consider those things whenever you go to build the building and don't just go for the cheapest thing because, because the physical world or what we worship in doesn't matter because that's mm, just not true. That's not true. Yeah. And also put your best people on it. Yeah. If you've got great artists in your church, use them. So, yeah, let's move on to, we had a response from Jonathan Hodges on the season one episode, I can't remember the number, but it's on redemption stories and why is it so hard for Christians to tell redemption stories. And we had a little bit in there where almost as an aside, I talked about Tolkien and how Tolkien sort of missed the opportunity to uh, uh, redeem Gollum or Schmeagol. And so, Jonathan Hodges wrote me uh, this this note about that, I thought it was uh, worth sharing. So, the beauty of the story to me, he writes, is summed up in the statement Galadriel makes to Frodo when he's in Shelob's tunnel. No one can do it for you. 
and then he gets back up and trudges to the end of his journey. I think your view trivializes and simplifies the character development to a degree that is not fully representative of the complexity that is woven throughout. But I also think you are right that Lord of the Rings is not written about a bad guy who is bad and does bad things who suddenly becomes good for no reason beyond some objectively ordained morality that the character must suddenly believe in because the author is a Christian and now this is how it is. But I do think the story itself serves to demonstrate a much more believable narrative that rings far more profoundly. Additionally, redemption, not to mention sanctification, is a much more complicated process than bad guy does good now. And I think Tolkien does an excellent job of illustrating this. Okay, so I agree. (laughs) I agree that Lord of the Rings is not about the conversion aspect of redemption as much as it is about temptation and sanctification. Right, that's exactly what I thought whenever I read that, because there's not, Frodo Frodo, um, persevered. Mm -hmm. He didn't, he wasn't redeemed. No. He didn't convert. He didn't um, change course. He just maintained through struggles and difficulties. And in some ways, his true nature was revealed through the test. Right. But his true nature didn't really change from beginning to end. He, Mm -hmm. he He was naive in the beginning, and less naive in the end. Character but, development isn't the same as character redemption. I, I, I agree, but but there is definitely a connection between redemption and sanctification and the perseverance of the saints and your eternal justification. So uh, I think maybe, I, I think Tolkien had a wonderful opportunity to redeem Gollum, which he missed, mm-hmm. and that I'm still going to stand by. Right. Um, but I think he didn't take the opportunity to do that because conversion really wasn't his focus. Mm. Um, and that's okay. So I think what Jonathan is saying, and it's a great point, is that not every story by a Christian has to be about every truth that is Christian or biblical. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it doesn't even have to be about such a central truth as redemption. Uh, Tolkien does a really great job of illustrating the corrupting influence of power and possessions and the deceitfulness of temptations, the wisdom of God and the weak things of the world, and the cosmic struggle between righteousness and wickedness. Yeah. And I feel like that's probably enough. You know, he should have fit more in there, but <laughs> he should have fit more in the epic story. Uh, and he also told a really good story. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, I think his focus was more on perseverance and the cosmic struggle and not so much on conversion. And so that's why. That's he, true. He, and that's know. a great point. Yeah. But there is still also a little bit of a, a false either or here, which is like you have a believable story of someone who struggles through sanctification mm-hmm. versus that bad guy who does bad things who suddenly becomes good for no reason beyond some objectively ordained morality that the character must suddenly believe in because the author is a Christian. And that's kind of our whole point, Yeah, is that that isn't the alternative. The alternative is good redemption stories. They're just hard to write, which yeah, is your whole point. Exactly. They're just very difficult to write well. And so, mm-hmm. yes, I agree. Tolkien wrote a story that, narratively speaking, is more believable because sin is more believable. <laughs> like, sin is more believable than conversion. Right. Um, and that's the point that Chesterton even makes, is that sin is a fact as practical as potatoes, but conversion, on the other hand, I mean, that's a miracle. Right. Like, so, every, you know, people can disagree on the believability of that, and that's why it's dangerous and difficult territory for a Christian author who wants to be believable and wants to write a well-told story, but doesn't want the sort of dos ex machina, God from the machine, everything is saved and everything turns around in a moment kind mm-hmm. of a thing. Sometimes that's the way it works, though. And mm-hmm. it's how do you tell that story? And that's, mm-hmm. yeah. So, yeah, agreed. Very good, carefully. Good, very carefully. Good thoughts, though. 
Good talks, uh, Jonathan. Thank you, Jonathan, for and and Lindsay and Tom for writing in. Um, we got a few more though. We have a few more. Yes, we do. Um, so let's go to an anonymous question. They asked to be anonymous. Yes. So and this is this really has to do. It's a more general question. They wrote and asked. Is it wrong to dislike Lauren Daigle's music because she sounds exactly like Adele? (laughs) It continues. It's as if, out of context, I would probably enjoy her latest album, Look Up Child, but I almost can't hear it outside of the context, she sounds exactly like Adele. Am I being too picky? Mm. So this is a real can of worms. I didn't know know who um, Lauren Daigle was, but... Looked her up on the YouTubes, mm-hmm. and I listened to one of her songs. Mm-hmm. Well, which one was it? Was it You Say? I didn't listen to much of it. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> it was, she has, it was pretty. It was a good song. <clears throat> um, but, uh, yep, sounds exactly like Adele. Here's the unfortunate thing, is if that's her natural voice, and that's just who she is, and she just happened to come after Adele... Then maybe you're being too picky, but it's also kind of hard, especially with such a specific sounding voice. Mm. Um, you know, like what if uh, who's the guy who sings uh, all Tom Waits? Exactly. So if you have a Tom Waits and then someone sings exactly mm. <laughs> exactly like that, yeah, and it's like, well, this is the voice so I had Tom anyway. Waits impression. A, they're probably lying. That wasn't even Tom Waits' singing voice. Right. It was his yeah. own invention. Yeah. But I'm, but, but I'm saying if someone came after him and sang the same way mm-hmm. and said, well, it's just my natural singing voice, then A, uh, they're lying, which is very <laughs> likely, or B, that's just really unfortunate timing. Yeah, uh, but be- does it even matter? So- See, that's what I struggle with because – I. I'm always thinking about motives. Like, for instance, I've watched interviews with Tom Waits, and I think Tom Waits has created a persona for his singing voice, and it's and but I think that it's legitimate. I think that like there's a genuineness to it or a purpose purpose in a that purpose performance to, to what he was doing that makes sense. And it's not a purpose that I would say is mercenary mm-hmm. as such. I mean, his voice, uh, even though it's very distinctive, it's not like the most marketable of voices uh, Tom Waits' mm-hmm. isn't. And, and some people are probably less sensitive to this than I am. But one of the things that really draws me to an artist, and honestly, it's one of the reasons I don't really like Adele, is I want to know that they're doing it for reasons other than just to make money or pursue fame or any of these other things that I don't think are valid reasons to pursue Well, the thing art. about Adele is that she sang like that before anyone else was. Well, so why no, no, no. would she choose to do that it's just Take that it risk. becomes a product, but her voice is it, her voice is pleasant to listen to. I mean, there's like it. It was one of those things that maybe the market didn't realize it until she became popular. But that's sort of the reason for the Lauren Daigle thing. Is like so Adele becomes popular, you realize that this is the kind of voice that maybe even you like, and that mm-hmm. can sell. And the marketing departments like, yeah, man, we've got another Adele lookalike, and that's part of the problem with Christian music generally, mm-hmm. where it's like. They're, you know, five years later and just not as good versions of the things that there you could have listened to. There used to even be signs in Lifeways, or I don't mm-hmm. know if it was Lifeways. If it was you like, like. If you like blank. Mm-hmm. And it was hilarious. Oh, I just remembered this. Yeah, it was hilarious because it was like, 
if you like Sufjan Stevens, mm-hmm. you will like Gunger, mm-hmm. which is hilarious. Oh, I think Gunger actually told the story or someone mm-hmm. who knew Gunger because yeah. they saw it and it was like, at the very least, like Sufjan is already a Christian, completely a Christian, yeah. at least as much as I am. And uh, yeah, that's 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 not the way that we should be making music. So I kind of agree with you on Lauren Daigle, uh, anonymous uh, question writer. Um, listening to her for a little while, I got the, I got, I did get that sense that this is derivative, that this is not, this doesn't feel authentic. But again, I'm really sensitive to that. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean I wouldn't support her. Right. So maybe be picky if you want to be picky, and this is not what you want to listen to. Um, then that's probably okay. And in a world with as much music as we have, anonymous writer, um, don't. Why are you stressing over it? <laughs> like, yeah, I wouldn't stress too much. Like, but like, if 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 she brings something to the table that she can't get anywhere else, then get yeah. over her voice. Yeah. And, but if she's not, then, then it's an easy it. pass. So but I think su- that that that's that. Oh, but be nope. supportive and encouraging, still, nonetheless, yeah. to people who are putting themselves out there in this way. It's a difficult thing to do. Um, and uh, as far as Christian artists who are out there. Uh, do strive to be original and find your unique voice, the one that God gave you and the things that God gave you to say. That doesn't mm-hmm. mean it's going to be your natural singing voice. It, it might be a persona like mm-hmm. Tom Waits, but uh, you know, but do find and, and, and hone the unique voice that God has given you and don't worry about whether or not it's going to be marketable. If, it's, mm-hmm. if it is true to what God has given you and, and you're able to offer it up to him um, in all sincerity, then let that be your sacrifice of praise and do it. Yep. All right. Um, we got another question from a Daniel Acosta, and he is asking a question that's sort of a follow-up to season one, episode eight, uh, which why are Christian artists at odds with the church? And uh, his question is, I think you touched on it a bit in a previous episode. Could you expand on why recently there's been more than a few talented Christian artists falling off the theological deep end or apostatizing altogether? What's weird is that there seems to be a trend. I have folks like David Bazan, Dustin Kinsrew, Derek Webb, The Gungers, and Mike Herrera from, from MXPX in mind. What's odd is that the trend seems to be with artists that don't fit within the current Christian mold and who, in my opinion, put out quality stuff. It's sad to see. This is a really, 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 really good point. Mm-hmm. So it it almost seems as if, guys, the mainstream people are towing the line. Like mm-hmm. they're staying in the church and their their faith is good. Like the independent Christian artists that are pushing the envelope and seem to be genuine or more honest or raw, they're the ones that are falling off. So it seems like I should probably stick to the Mainstreamer. Mainstream stuff. Well, let's push back on that a little bit, though. I mean, one of the founding members of Newsboys is an atheist now. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not a, This is not exclusively, exclusively in, in, to the independent artists. Actually, the music industry eats a lot of people's faith. And uh, what the guy from As I Lay Dying, I don't remember his name, but he put out a hit on his wife because he was had been cheating on her for years and had rejected God and was a total atheist but was still touring with his Christian band singing mm-hmm. Christian lyrics because it was a paycheck. Um, yeah. Anyway, the point being, uh, he said that he, he felt like maybe one out of ten of the bands that they toured with were legitimately and authentically Christian. 
that most mm. of them are just claiming to be Christian. Now, obviously, he's an atheist and probably far more cynical, and maybe he was reading some people's uh, attitudes wrong or whatever. I don't know. And here's a little teaser, actually. Yeah. If, if this subject interests you, we are sponsoring our first film. We are giving a grant this year to our first feature-length film, and it is a full-length documentary called... What would Jesus sell? And it is a um, exploration of the Christian music industry where um, the producers are interviewing some of the most prominent Christian music uh, artists through the 90s um, and earlier and, of course, later uh, and discuss the um, good, the bad, and the ugly Mm -hmm. of the Christian music industry. So a lot of these questions will be answered next year with the re- release of that film. But let's just say, I think the main problem, even within mainstream Christian music, and mm-hmm. the reason why you see like a fall off of, uh, of, of true authentic Christianity with a lot of people in those scenes as well, people will say, you know, I feel like I'm drifting from God, but there's nothing I can do. I still have to do worship music on Sunday, and I don't even feel these words anymore, but I still have to sing. I mean, that's troubling. That, that, that's really, really difficult. If you're having... If you're feeling distant from God um, for whatever reason and or you're struggling with certain temptations, but you still have to go out on stage and be as on fire as you've ever been, that's Mm -hmm. a lot of pressure and it creates a rift, I think, of hypocrisy that can be a really difficult thing to navigate and manage, especially if you're not willing to just be humble and take a step back or take a break if you need a break um, and really pursue God and, and, and reassess the situation. There's that. But with a lot of these guys who, you know, Daniel is saying are, are talented, which they are, and they're putting out quality stuff most of the time, um, I think one of the major problems is that they don't feel a place in the church. Um, they, they don't feel supported within the church because they're not mainstream. Mm-hmm. They're, they're having to go the independent route, and so they go out into this independent void, and they don't have accountability. Mm-hmm. And yeah. a lot of these guys are really good artists because they're honest and mm-hmm. vulnerable. Mm-hmm. So they're actually speaking truths that you experience mm-hmm. uh, that you might not say out loud because of fear. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these guys are dealing with doubt or um, just struggling with the realness of life. Mm-hmm. And they're willing to put it into a song. And, um, and maybe that willingness to be honest with themselves uh, excludes them from a lot of mainstream churchy, you know, the mainstream church. Right. Um, and then at that point, their honesty with themselves, they're gonna they're going to make the sacrifice to leave altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, which might not sound like a sacrifice. It might might sound like a falling off. But at the point, if they are going to continue to be true to themselves as they were with this really great music, then they're not gonna fake a false Christianity to keep the paycheck coming. Mm-hmm. So it's a really heartbreaking scenario where their honesty produced really great music for the church, but then because of the terrible relationship between the church and her artists, they get pushed out and eventually might give up altogether, which isn't really always the case. Usually it's a giving up on church as an organization and not mm-hmm. necessarily following Jesus or, or um, church with a capital C, which is... <laughs> Not helpful, but mm. also kind of understandable because they've been pushed out. So, yeah. 
So where's the accountability once they're outside? There isn't any. And that's then you can see the drift occurring once they get pushed out to those fringes. Where is their community? Mm-hmm. Who do they have community with? Um, and, I mean, you can see this with Derek Webb, especially. He's basically documented that drift in albums. Mm-hmm. Um, David Bazan also largely documented a lot of that drift. And I think you're right. He, Both of them unwilling uh, to forego honesty about these things. But it's not it's not so much the thing that they just fell off, you know. I mean, they had they had extraordinarily deep felt painful breakups with the church mm-hmm. that ended up resulting, I think, in a drifting from God. Which the idea that you can have a relationship with God and not have a relationship with His people is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. If you're so if the people, if the people of God for whatever reason are shoving honest seekers and and maybe even doubters and honest people generally out to the fringes because their honest questions or their doubts don't fit in with the external superficial appearances that we're wanting to maintain, um, that becomes a real danger for artists and it becomes a real danger for the church as well. Because I think it would be better if all of these guys had found a place, a community where there was accountability and where people were able to take their questions and receive their pains mm-hmm. and and sit with them and kind of work through these things. And again, these are public figures. How do people reach a public figure through comments and through, you know, Facebook messages or posts and stuff like that? And we're a lot more free, I think, to be unpleasant and unkind in those public forums than we might be face to face. And so a lot of the Christians who, I mean, and you see this happening even with Lecrae. Um, and Lecrae is probably on a trajectory toward some sort of a crisis of faith because of this, I think. I don't um, think you can say that. No, I'm saying it is a crisis. He is being pushed toward a crisis. I'm not saying it'll go one way or the other. I'm saying that he is going. He is. He's being forced, and to a large extent, by the mainstream church to make decisions that I don't think he would have had to make if the church gotcha. had just accepted him. Gotcha. Um, that you know he has to make decisions of loyalty and of belonging and identity. Like if you, so are you going to toe the party line or exactly. are you going to diverge? Right. And if you diverge, then you're out. Then you're not part of us anymore. Yeah. And if which was really interesting because that was a, a actually a pretty big theme in um, anomaly. Yeah, anomaly was where you really started to see that come out. Yeah. And a lot of that was because of the church clothes uh, EP that he had put out that got a lot of pushback from mm-hmm. uh, mainstream evangel- white evangelicals, which made up a, a fairly large portion of his fan base. Right. And they were saying like, hey, man, we've stuck with you. Why are you talking about race all of a sudden and criticizing us and all this kind of stuff and criticizing mm-hmm. the situation within the church? And it's like, well, he's actually functioning the way he's supposed to be functioning, mm-hmm. uh, calling to account people who probably do need to be called to account. Mm-hmm. And why why not just receive this and continue to work through this rather than getting offended and pushing them away, which is what happened, I think, when and what has happened with a lot of these artists. Yeah. They open up into a prophetic voice and the people reject them. And I've never heard of that happening. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's so strange. So it's There's ha- no what's the solution to it? The solution is for the for the church to be more receptive to these things on one side, but also for artists to stick it out and grow mm-hmm. a little bit of a thicker skin, I think. 
Um, mm-hmm. Artists don't tend to have very thick skin, and when they start feeling rejections, they start like retreating away and trying to find a space where they can be a little bit more accepted or whatever. Mm-hmm. And most of that is, it, you, you just got to stick it out, and and it's hard. It is really really hard, um, but it is possible. And I've seen a lot of artists who do it. It just takes humility, and really, I mean, on both sides, it's going to take humility. It's going to have to take the humility of the church to receive these prophetic voices and the humility of these prophets to continue speaking to a church that doesn't want to hear them. And putting themselves in submission to one another, which is our biblical call as the church, to submit one to another. That's right. Let's end on on a happy note. We got a message from someone who has been listening to our podcast, and I wanted to share this with you. It was really sweet. We were incredibly encouraged by it. We love all the questions. We love all the comments. We love the disagreement. Uh, All of it's great. Y'all keep sending them. Um, At the same time, it it is very special when we get uh, people sending in um, testimonies about how helpful the podcast has been. And this isn't uh, certainly not the only one we've gotten, but uh, we got this just a couple days ago. So he said, went on a road trip this weekend with my 14-year-old son, who is an aspiring artist. We binged on your podcast for some of the ride and wanted to reach out to you and thank you again for what you're doing. He was so engaged and encouraged by your latest two episodes. His art is beautiful, but not the style of music that is commonly accepted by the church. He struggled with this and his identity as an artist. Your podcast has been a huge blessing to him and even more so for me as a father trying to teach and encourage him. The last two episodes are by far my favorite and most helpful podcasts I've heard in a long time, period. Thank you for what you do. Let us know if we could ever be of assistance to you. Yeah, and he uh, followed up on that. Um, this is Robert Houghton. He said he mm. could use these comments. Okay. Um, he said, seeing how engaged my son was with the podcast and then discussing with him his questions as a result of the podcast was beyond priceless to me as a dad. That's awesome. It is awesome. And when I think about that, and we got another uh, a message fairly uh, recently from another father who is listening to the podcast with his high school-aged daughter. Oh, wow. And, um, and, and he says, uh, she loves you guys too. Perfect for her and her senior year at a Christian high school with a load of nominal Christians. Mm. Um, and I'm seeing, you know, fathers and mothers, like, listening mm-hmm. to this podcasts mm-hmm. with their kids and sort of sharing who are artists in who the church, artists in coming, the church of age. coming of age <laughs> right and to me that is extremely encouraging yeah because in some ways to deal with daniel acosta's question again <clears throat> in these terms that's sort of what's necessary for these artists to feel like there is a community within the church mm-hmm. that is welcoming and also that is is sort of setting aside uh, or at least attempting to set aside a lot of the legalistic and checklist kind of strictures that Lindsay rightly is pushing out uh, b- back against, right? Um, in order to create an environment where there is a free, freer exchange of these different local cultural expressions of submission and love for God, 
um, that are able to live together and be of benefit in, in this mutual uh, space yeah. um, rather than booting these guys out. And I think for these young people growing up, realizing there are already people in place before us that came before us that God has already put in place to start to, to till the soil a little bit mm. so that when we get to that age where we start to produce some art, maybe we'll be better received. Maybe, maybe they will be prepared for receiving the art that we're making. And this podcast is a lot of work, but that makes it completely worth oh, it. Oh, totally. Just right off the bat. Yeah, even if it were just the one person. Yeah. If there was just one person in the future, it was like your podcast made the difference between me staying in the church and leaving the church. It'd be like success. Yeah, total success. Yeah. Well, folks, that's a wrap for season two. Might have gone a little long on that one, but um, we'll see you for season three. Might be uh, changing it up a little bit. We're no, excited. We we're excited to announce that at a later date, so follow us on Facebook and Instagram to make sure you get any updates on what we're planning for this podcast. Thank you so much for following us. Thank you for listening. Send in any comments and any love, and we love you guys.